Today's movie had a three to four million dollar budget, and I'm guessing a good chunk of that money went to the chemical enhancements for the stars. Got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. I'm gonna take you to the bank. Welcome B-Movie Maniacs to another episode of B-Movie Babylon, a safe space for trash cinema lovers where we firmly believe the B in B-Movie stands for brilliant. I'm your host, Mike Bracken. Some of you may know me as the horror geek on YouTube or for my stint on Comedy Central's old pop culture game show, Beat the Geeks. Others will remember me as that dick on social media. And really, I'm all of the above. No matter how you know me, thanks for being here as we stalk the forgotten corners of the video store in search of the best B-movies ever made. Whether you love martial arts mayhem, low-budget rip-offs of popular movies, direct-to-video skinamax flicks, classic horror fare, sleaze, or exploitation, I've got you covered. In today's episode, we're headed back to the 80s for one of my favorite sword and sorcery flicks of the era, The Barbarians. This canon production was designed to do two things cash in on the success of Conan the Barbarian and the 80s resurgence of fantasy films, and make David and Peter Paul, aka the Barbarian Brothers, international action stars. I'm not entirely sure it was successful in either regard, but goddamn, is it fun anyway. Today, we'll talk about the film's historical lineage, how it got made, and its legacy. But first, let's talk a bit about my own personal history with this cult classic flick. If you were to ask me to classify myself by the kinds of movies I loved as a kid, I'd have probably gone with horror fan first and foremost. But as anyone who's listened to me prattle on endlessly about weird movies for the past 20 plus years knows, I'm probably more accurately described as a trash or cult cinema lover. I grew up loving splatter flicks, crazy action movies, Hong Kong cinema, samurai movies, and just a ton of weird stuff that you'd find in the forgotten corners of a video store. I was not fortunate enough to live in a place with a truly great video store until I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 90s, which gave me access to places like Video Room in Oakland and the long gone and sadly missed La Video in San Francisco. But before Blockbuster basically killed all the good mom and pop stores here in the Tampa area, you could still sometimes find weird movies on the shelves. I mean, I found bad taste here back in 87 or 88 when no one even knew who Peter Jackson was. One of my best friends in high school, and really to this day, even though I never see him, was my buddy Jeff. As I've mentioned in the past, I had pretty laid-back parents. If my grades were good, they didn't really care too much about what I did with my free time. Jeff, though, had the kind of parents we all wanted. Parents who very much left him to his own devices and gave him a lot of cool things that I did not have at that age. For example, Jeff decided he wanted to learn how to scratch and mix in high school. So his mother basically went out and bought him Techniques 1200 turntables, which were super expensive and iconic, and a mixer just completely out of the blue. Had I asked my parents for a $1,000 set of turntables, they would have laughed. Many of my favorite high school memories revolve around shit I did with Jeff, and a few other people who might turn up in these stories on the show eventually. We used to go shop for new rap music all the time, we'd spend weekends hidden in his room living on chips and salsa playing Strider on the Sega Genesis, and we watched a shit ton of movies. The cool thing about Jeff was that we had very similar tastes in films. That aforementioned viewing of bad taste? That was because we saw it at the video store and both immediately knew we were renting it. I saw a lot of movies during those years because Jeff and I would rent weird shit or find weird shit on cable, and since he had his own VCR, he'd record it. I'm pretty sure hanging out with Jeff was how I first saw Razorback and maybe even A Nightmare on Elm Street, as I recall. It was a really good time. Anyway, somewhere around either 1989 or 1990, I wandered into the local dollar video. 
there were two decent video stores here. Dollar Video and one I can't remember the name of that eventually became a movie gallery. That place had a great layout with a horror room that looked like you were entering a dilapidated Evil Dead-esque cabin that I thought was the coolest thing ever. Anyway, while perusing the usual suspects and trying to decide if we really wanted to rent Reanimator for the 53rd time, I spotted the Barbarians. I wouldn't exactly call my teenage self a fantasy fan. I mean, I read and reread The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings in junior high. I'd read and liked Terry Brooks's Sword of Shannara, and I had another best friend who was very into fantasy, but I was really more the horror guy of our social group. It's hilarious to look at how popular shit like D&D and video games are today. I'm going to tell my kids and grandkids there was literally a time when I was in high school where acknowledging you were going to spend the weekend reading the new Drist book from R.A. Salvatore, playing D&D, and working on finishing Final Fantasy was at best going to get you ridiculed and at worst get you stuffed in a gym locker. But despite the potential negative social ramifications, I did like a good sword and sorcery flick. I'd seen Harryhausen's Sinbad work and some of the old Hercules flicks, and we all loved Conan and Red Sonja. So, seeing two jacked guys with medieval weapons on the cover of a movie called The Barbarians definitely caught my attention. And the second I saw the Canon logo, and directed by Ruggiero Diodato, well, we were renting that thing. No way we weren't. I didn't really know it at the time, because I was still really learning about all these weird films and subgenres I love, but The Barbarians is another in a long line of Italian peplum films. If you're not familiar with that term or this subgenre, allow me to put on my tweed professor's jacket and break it down for you as best as I can. The Italian peplum film subgenre, often referred to as sword and sandal cinema and referenced as pepla in the plural form, emerged during the mid-20th century and gained prominence primarily in the 1950s and 1960s. It was characterized by its distinctive combination of historical and mythological narratives, grandiose spectacle, and muscular, hero-centric protagonists. The peplum genre holds a unique position within the broader spectrum of Italian and international cinema. Peplum films frequently drew inspiration from ancient Greek and Roman history, as well as classical mythology, often featuring epic quests, legendary heroes, and mythic creatures. The term peplum itself alludes to the toga-like garments commonly worn by characters in these films, presumably emphasizing the genre's connection to ancient times. At the core of the peplum subgenre is the portrayal of larger-than-life protagonists who often exhibit superhuman strength, valor, and moral rectitude. These heroic figures, such as Hercules, Samson, and Ursus, serve as archetypal symbols of virtue and strength, embarking on quests to combat tyranny, rescue the oppressed, and restore justice. The peplum hero's moral clarity and physical prowess make them emblematic figures within the peplum narrative tradition. Furthermore, the Peplum films are celebrated for their utilization of lavish sets, elaborate costumes, and epic battle sequences. These elements create a sense of opulence and splendor, contributing to the genre's distinct visual aesthetic. The films often feature daring action sequences, impressive feats of strength, and confrontations with monstrous adversaries, further enhancing the spectacle and allure of the subgenre. I mean, this is really just the tip of the iceberg, but I'm not here to run a semester-long class on the subgenre. I'm really just trying to give you a basic understanding of what the films were and how they came into existence. There have been entire books written on this subgenre. I'll link you some in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. But here, let me have someone way smarter than me break it down for you. This comes from Professor Robert Rushing. In its most stereotypical form, the peplum depicts muscle-bound heroes, professional bodybuilders, athletes, wrestlers, or brawny actors in mythological antiquity, fighting fantastic monsters and saving scantily clad beauties. Rather than lavish epics set in the classical world, they are low-budget films that focus on the hero's extraordinary body. Thus, most sword and sandal films featured a superhumanly strong man as the protagonist, such as Hercules, Samson, Goliath, or Ursus. 
Anyway, the sword and sandals films were basically out of vogue again by the mid-1960s, but like so many genre staples, popularity moves in cycles, and by the mid-80s, Italian filmmakers would see how popular and profitable Conan the Barbarian, Quest for Fire, and Clash of the Titans were, and would once again return to making low-budget fantasy films and the like. This new wave of Pepla featured guys like Lou Ferrigno, Miles O'Keefe, and the Barbarian Brothers as the heroes of old. And like the previous wave of films in this subgenre, this series of Pepla didn't last forever either. At any rate, there are some wildly entertaining films that came out of the 80s revival, including The Barbarians, which we'll be talking about today. And again, the Pepla is a rich and expansive subgenre. This barely scratches the surface, but you now know enough to understand the historical context of this film and have a very rudimentary understanding of the subgenre as a whole. Which already makes you way smarter than most of the guys on the internet. Alright, another long-winded intro done. Let's take a quick break and dive into the Barbarians. One thing I love about this movie is that it tells you you're in for a treat straight away with the Canon Group logo. <laughs> I wish Canon was still a thing. They could basically sponsor this show. The 80s really were a decade of weird movies, and Canon really led the charge for a number of years. One of the things that really stands out about The Barbarians to me is that it's basically a B-movie who's who. We've got a lot of B-movie icons in this film. The Barbarian Brothers, Richard Lynch, Michael Berryman, and it's a film directed by cannibal Holocaust filmmaker Ruggiero Diodato. If you love B-movies and hear those names, then you know you're about to see something special. Plus, you just know a movie's gonna be great when Michael Berryman plays a character named The Dirt Master. The Barbarians was an Italian-American co-production, which not only explains how we got Diodato directing, but how the legendary Pino DiNaggio wound up doing the score. Look, I gotta be honest, Diodato directing a film for canon that is basically a Conan cash-in with a score from Pino DiNaggio checks boxes I didn't even know I had. At any rate, DiNaggio is arguably as big a name in Italian cinema scores as the legendary Ennio Morricone, but that didn't mean he wasn't willing to work with a company like Canon. All told, DiNaggio did eight full soundtracks for Canon films over the years, which included more of these sword and sorcery flicks like Hercules and Gore, which actually reused some of the score from Hercules, as I recall. While we're still kind of getting through the credits, it feels important to mention that this film's screenplay was written by James R. Silky, who was one of Canon's go-to writers. We touched on Silky's work briefly in the Ninja 3 episode, but he not only penned that script and this one, but he was also the guy who gave us the incredible Revenge of the Ninja and King Solomon's Mines. I'm pretty sure all of his produced scripts were for Canon projects, but it's a veritable cream of the crop of their output. With the credits over, we head into the actual movie have voiceover narration to set the stage. Once upon a time, long, long ago, there existed a world of savage splendor. I'll be honest, I'm just a complete sucker for the 80s sword and sorcery stuff. I mean, I think we all grew up loving Conan, but there were so many other great attempts to cash in on that film's success. To be fair, the Italians have been plying this ground long before Conan with all of the Hercules and other sword and sandal films decades earlier. But we really hit a golden era for this particular subgenre in the 80s. What's crazy about it is they often really didn't have the budgets to pull off creating fully realized fantasy worlds, so there's a weirdly cheap sort of artifice to a lot of these films that I just adore. It feels like we're in a new golden age of fantasy after the Lord of the Rings films and Game of Thrones. And while I really like that stuff, and things like Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time and the like, there's just something about those 80 sword and board flicks that really appeals to me. I think it's that they just didn't have money or CGI, so when guys like Fulci made a movie like Conquest, they really had to be inventive with the costumes and sets and all of that. And I'm a sucker for that sort of cheap but real look these films had. 
Anyway, the voiceover narration is still going on, and we learn this group of people are the Ragnicks, a tribe that can safely travel the rugged world we're in because their king traded a mountain of gold for a single ruby. In the dawn of time, their ancient king had traded a mountain of gold for a single sparkling ruby. That eh, doesn't sound like a good trade to me, but what do I know? So now they're basically carnies, traveling the world, entertaining people. Oh, and they adopted three orphans. They adopted the orphan twins, Kuchek and Gore, and a little girl, Kara. But wait, they also have a queen, Canary, who's actually Virginia Bryant. Bryant had a small part in Demons 2 and would reteam with Lamberto Bava for the Ogre. This is probably her biggest role. One sort of surprising thing about the Barbarians that we should probably get out of the way here is that it's really quite beautifully shot. Diodato was really mostly known to audiences for his gore and exploitation work in films like Cannibal Holocaust and The House on the Edge of the Park, but this film in particular demonstrates that he wasn't just a hack with a camera. One of the things Nathaniel Thompson points out on the film's commentary track, which also features my pal Troy Howarth, is that there are a number of obvious influences on this film, some that we'll touch on during the episode. However, one that doesn't get mentioned a lot that Thompson points out is Richard Donner's 1985 fantasy film Lady Hawk. They used a lot of Italian crew on the production of Lady Hawk, and it seems quite obvious that they learned things making that film that they then applied to the Barbarians. Which brings me to one of the things that always bums me out when talking about the Fulci's and Diodato's and Bava's of the world. All of these men were talented filmmakers, but many times the films were business and not art. So they just shot them quickly and cheaply and rarely got the opportunity to show off their skills in the same way a Dario Argento did. But make no mistake, they were all talented, which is something that often gets lost in the discussion of their work. This film is a really great calling card for what Diodato could do with some money, a mostly good cast, and a decent script. For his part, Diodato was not the initial choice to helm this film. The project originally belonged to Yugoslavian director Slobodan Sijan, who worked on the film for roughly a month prior to actual shooting. For some reason, the director and Cannabosses Golan and Globus had creative differences, and Sijan found himself replaced by Diodato. With pre-production underway already, Diodato came in and shot the actual film from August to October of 1986, both on location in the Abruzzo Mountains and in a studio in Rome. As Troy Howarth points out, this is probably the biggest budget of his career, with reports indicating the Barbarians had a production budget somewhere in the $3 to $4 million range. Back in the movie, it looks like our peaceful circus tribe is about to get wrecked. Because one thing I've learned from years of watching fantasy movies is that when you see guys who look like monsters or have weird face masks on and all that, they're never the good guys. Ah oh, yeah, and Richard Lynch is with them. They're definitely bad guys or hunting yadaglanchis. Richard Lynch was one of the consummate character actors of the era. If you love cult movies, you know him on sight. Even if you don't love cult movies to the point where you know the actors by name, you almost assuredly recognize his face. This dude's resume is overflowing with B-movie cult classics. Lynch was the personification of a working actor, racking up almost 200 screen credits in a career that spanned roughly five decades. The scarred actor's distinctive looks made him a perfect villain, and those scars were real. Lynch, while under the influence, set himself on fire back in 1970 and burned 70% of his body. But it wasn't just his menacing appearance that got him roles, he was legitimately a great character actor who could effortlessly slip into almost any role you gave him. And he had a great voice. It is time for you to learn the pleasures. He spent a lot of his career doing stuff like this, but he's also unforgettable in films like Invasion USA, Bad Dreams, and The Sword and the Sorcerer. This was not the first time the actor had worked with Ruggiero Diodato. The two had previously collaborated, along with another of this film's stars, Michael Berryman, on the jungle thriller Cut and Run a few years earlier. Naturally, a chase scene ensues, and we see the Ragnicks aren't just performers. They can defend themselves, too. 
what really stands out about this scene today is that this is before the age of CGI. So they actually had to get horses and guys who could ride and do stunts. Today, they'd green screen most of this. And the Ragnicks aren't messing around because they got a giant crossbow in the back of one of those carriages too. It's hard not to look at this entire lengthy chase sequence and not think of it as something out of a medieval Mad Max movie, honestly. And really, how cool would that have been? The fact that the film has so many diverse influences really kind of drives home how perfect a match canon working with the Italians truly was. Here were two groups of creatives who were both incredibly adept at seeing a popular cinema trend and then cashing in with their own sort of low-budget riff on that popular film. This is not to disparage either canon or the Italians, because both collectives were fantastic at taking a popular property and using it as a blueprint for something the mainstream critical community would call a knockoff. But at the end of the day, the Canna product and the Italian pastiches alike were often quite inventive and took the inspiration provided by popular mainstream cinema, but then morphed it into something uniquely their own. The Barbarians is really no exception in that regard. It's also really interesting to note that this film, which came out in 1987, still found Canon films in what I'd consider their golden era. Canon was a company primarily known for action schlock, ninja movies, Chuck Norris flicks, it was the house that Charlie Bronson helped build. But by this time, they were making inroads into other genres and getting recognition for it. Anyway, back to the movie. If you're not watching this on YouTube, you'll just have to take my word for it. But I love that this dude looks like George R.R. R. Martin's take on Emo Phillips, basically. And it looks like our traveling circus has gotten away, but not so fast. They've basically been headed off at the pass instead. And Richard Lynch is here too. And he's sporting the tousled top with Braid's look. Sort of like hip young B. Arthur. I'm already in love with this movie. If you're wondering why Lynch is harassing these poor peaceful people, well, it's because he wants the ruby. Where is the ruby? And to get it, he's gonna kidnap Princess Canary, which really is a dumb name. But the baby barbarian brothers are not cool with that and bite off a couple of Lynch's fingers. I mean, you knew we were gonna get some gore in a Diodato film, right? One of the things I really love here are the weird costume designs in this film. Princess Canary looks like she's wearing a bejeweled pasta strainer on her head, and really I'd not be surprised if that's what she was actually wearing. It is interesting that the costume design here really runs the gamut. They spent a lot of money making the Ragnicks basically look like extras from the safety dance video, and Lynch and Berryman and his main henchmen definitely got elaborate outfits. Naturally, the Barbarian Brothers didn't need any clothes at all other than the loincloths, so presumably that money got spent on the villains. Most of the women, meanwhile, are just wearing slightly gussied up bikinis to make them look like they belong in a fantasy. That spandex is not full of me, though. Back in the story, Richard Lynch is set to kill the kids, but that would mean the end of the movie in less than 15 minutes, so Canary agrees to do whatever he wants as long as he'll spare them. And surprisingly, he agrees. As long as I live, these two will never die by my hand or by the hands of my men. Then we watch as Lynch, whose character name is Kadar, returns to his fortress with his new queen, some of the Ragnik women, and the barbarian orphans. And we finally meet Michael Berryman. I've already mentioned that Berryman had previously collaborated with Lynch and Diodato in Cut and Run, but Berryman is perhaps best known to horror fans for his work on Wes Craven's Sonny Bean riff, The Hills Have Eyes, in 1977. There, the distinctive looking actor plays one of a band of cannibal mutants terrorizing a family who's broken down in the middle of nowhere. It's a real testament to Berryman's talent that he's known for playing mutants and monsters, but the man behind the monsters is a lovely, well-spoken, and thoughtful human being. He's another one of those character actors where when you see his name in the credits, you know the movie won't be a complete wash. So far, The Barbarians is already steeped in traditional fantasy tropes, but then an evil sorcerer shows up and takes it to another level. And I can't shake the feeling that this could have been a more accurate cinematic adaptation of Masters of the Universe than the film we actually got. 
which was another canon production from 1987. I mean, this woman feels a lot like Evil Lynn, and Berryman could be a poor man standing for Beast Man if we're being honest. In an interesting bit of trivia, the sorceress China is played by actress Sheba Alahani. She's really quite striking and good in the role, but she never turned up in anything beyond this film to my knowledge. That was probably a missed opportunity for her. She definitely had the looks and the presence to become a B-movie queen. With the kids spared, they wind up just like Conan, working in the pits. Then, thanks to the magic of time-lapse, they grow up and get jacked. This is one of those things that always cracks me up about this movie and Conan. They're prisoners forced into working in these terrible camps, but the idea they'd somehow get jacked is absurd. I'm literally a powerlifter, and getting huge is challenging under good conditions. You have to eat a lot. And I somehow doubt they were feeding prisoners hundreds of grams of protein a day. That being said, the Barbarian Brothers, aka David and Peter Paul, really were specimens. Their careers never hit the lofty heights Arnold reached, but it wasn't because they weren't ridiculously buff and huge. And I suppose this is as good a time as any to talk about the long, strange road that is the Paul Brothers' career. After spending their teens as wrestlers and bodybuilders, the Paul Brothers opened their first commercial gym, named P&D's House of Iron in Rhode Island in the late 1970s. Running the gym led them to meeting guys like Joe Weider, who apparently nicknamed the Barbarian Twins based on their extreme workouts and diets. According to sources, the brothers each ate like three dozen eggs a day, washed down with amino acid tablets, and chocolate milk. Now look, I'm not being a negative Nancy here, but there was clearly some vitamin S in the regimen as well. By 1979, Weider and others had convinced the Pauls to head west to Southern California, where they could try to follow the path to stardom paved by guys like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno. The plan started to pay dividends by 1982, which was a big year for the twins as they were featured in both bodybuilding magazines and Sports Illustrated, which was a step on the way to landing supporting roles in the 1983 comedy DC Cab. There was the obligatory Playgirl appearance after that, then they wrote a sort of autobiographical spec script called Better Than One that they shopped to Canon Films. Golan and Globus weren't interested in Better Than One, but immediately signed the brothers to a two-picture deal and cast them in The Barbarians. Unfortunately, they never made a second film for canon and were released from their contract. For their part, the brothers apparently had a good attitude about their limited acting range because they actually showed up at the Golden Raspberry Awards when they were nominated for Worst New Star. Unfortunately, they didn't manage to bring home the prize. From there, they went on to make cinematic classics like Double Trouble and several other cult films. By the 2000s, their film careers were basically over. They tried to launch several projects, but nothing ever came of it, but they'll always be remembered for their work here. And one of the things I love about these movies is that the twins have aged like 15 years, but Princess Canary and Kadar haven't aged a day. Kadar's still trying to woo Canary, which is maybe the longest courtship ever, but even after almost two decades together, she's not settling for his trinkets and jewelry. Looks like a chain for a slave. But it's not bad enough that he can't get his dream girl to give him the time of day. He's also got this evil sorceress making power moves too. I am still nasty here. Man, I guess it's true that the head that wears the crown never rests easy. But she does have an idea to get the queen to comply. The twins, who are protected from being killed by Kadar or his men, will be sent to the arena to kill each other. The bastards will kill each other. And that's handy. If you're wondering how they'll get them to do this bit of dirty work, it's because they haven't seen each other in ages, and they're both wearing masks of the men who tormented them. Which really is a smarter story beat than I'd have expected from this type of film. Credit to James Silkey. And they square off in Mortal Kombat. Arnold trained for a long time to learn the sword for Conan. I'm comfortable saying the Paul brothers did not, judging by the fight here. I mean, this isn't exactly Highlander in the sword fight department, but it's good enough for this kind of film. 
They're going to hack off each other's limbs here, at least until one of the barbarian bros loses his mask. And it's like looking in a mirror, or that popular Spider-Man meme. Yeah, then suppose you tell me what you're doing with my face! Oh yeah, these two are fantastic. They may not be great actors, but you can just tell they're having a good time. And it just gets better. Gar, you bloody idiot! It's me, Kojak, your brother! Then they make an improbable escape right into a landscape with a map painting that looks kind of like Castle Grayskull. One of the things I love about these 80s movies are the map paintings in the backgrounds. I get it, you can often tell they're paintings, but it's just so much more artistic and charming than CGI. Anyway, they escape into the woods and lose their pursuers, but find his main. This is actress Eva LaRue, who's had quite a strange career, going from this movie, to soap operas, to a recurring role on the hit CBS series CSI Miami. Oh, and they find Emo and the rest of the Ragnicks. It's like a reunion in here. They also have not aged. Since it's been years since they've seen each other, no one trusts anyone, and Ebar hits one of the brothers right where it hurts. Stay where you are, fatty. You want to see a bodybuilder cry? Call him fat. Trust me on this. But hurt feelings are the least of their worries because Ebar and the Ragnicks are completely unconvinced these two are Kuchek and Gore and are going to hang them instead. That's not going to work though because Kuchek just breaks the ropes flexing his neck. <laughs> all those goofy neck lifts can pay off. Also, this is the least inspiring battle cry ever. Everyone finally recognizes them when they see the marks on their neck. So yeah, all that early narrative setup is actually paying off in a B-movie for once. With everyone reunited like this is a Peaches and Herb song, they head off with Ismane leading them to weapons so they can rescue Queen Canary from her cage and kill Kadar once and for all. Well, that and hopefully find a Gold's Gym so they can get in for a bench day. They eventually wind up at the tavern where they run into a very familiar face to anyone who watches my other YouTube show, Sick Flicks. It's George Eastman, aka the Anthropophagus himself, Luigi Montefiore. Montefiore, who often gets credited as George Eastman, has been a fixture in Italian genre cinema for decades. A veritable renaissance man, Montefiore has worked as an actor, perhaps best known as the titular monster of Joe D'Amato's classic splatter flick Anthropophagus, but for my money, his finest work is in Mario Bava's brilliant thriller Rabid Dogs. Beyond acting, Montefiore has worked extensively as a screenwriter and has even gotten behind the camera as a director. He's one of those guys like Giovanni Lombardo Radice. You see his name in the credits and you're instantly way more interested in the movie. But Luigi isn't going to just sell them weapons, he wants to arm wrestle for them and his main. And it's pretty funny because Luigi Montefiore is like 6 foot 8 inches tall and towers over the Paul brothers. Honestly, I had no idea I was basically getting over the top in my sword and sorcery movie and I'm not complaining. Naturally, Montefiore loses and we get a bar brawl, which really is just here to give the Paul brothers more opportunities to flex and throw around extras. Oh, <laughs> and get oiled up. Can't forget that. Honestly, I totally want to know what the full cycle these guys were on was. They sneak into the city that night, and I was about to say I was stunned there was an Italian-American sword and sorcery flick directed by Ruggiero Diodato with no nudity in it. But we do finally get a couple of boobs here. I mean, beyond the Paul brothers. If you're listening, I'm kidding, guys. I love your work. Anyway, they make it to the secret passageway to Kadar's harem, which is conveniently behind a large rock so these two can show off how strong they are by moving it. I'd really love to talk to James Silkey and ask him if he wrote a bunch of scenes to show off how strong these two were, or if Diodato added them, or if the twins just insisted on the set. And now we're just going to make up for all the misnudity opportunities, I guess. But they do find Canary, 
trapped in her gilded cage. I'd say that was a metaphor, but these two couldn't even spell metaphor. Of course, it's way too early to rescue her, so she's basically an NPC quest giver. They gotta get that ruby from the start, which is in a forbidden land and guarded by a dragon. God, I sure hope this movie is gonna give us a giant dragon creature. I cannot wait to see that disaster piece. Oh no, it's a multi-stage quest line too. You've got to go to the tomb of the ancient king. There you'll find the weapons you need. Those are the worst. I'm not gonna lie, this is kinda like Skyrim right now. But before they can head off on this quest, they're gonna hook up with the entire harem. Because of course they are. The good news is they totally scored. The bad news is Canary is getting whipped like a run of mule by Berryman. Then, in a totally unsurprising plot twist, the evil sorceress wants the ruby. And she's not looking to share it with Kadar. And this does not sit well with him. No one defies Kadar. I'll be honest, I'm not sure how we're going to fit all these quests in the last 30 minutes of this film, but I'm guessing completing all of them will require feats of strength only the Barbarian Brothers could pull off. I'm also guessing we'll find out, because we're now at the Tomb of the Ancient King, which is guarded by something that looks like it came straight out of Bruno Mattei's Rats, Knights of Terror. And yes, a feat of strength is required to move another giant rock. With that taken care of, it's time for some grave robbing. Before they can leave with their plunder, the monster sends a bunch of random monster arms to attack them. And yeah, it's as weird as it sounds. I give the movie this much. I'm sure the budget on this thing was best described as minuscule, but honestly, Dandato and team created some cool sets. The film feels much bigger and more impressive than it has any right to. Anyway, while they're trying to escape the tomb, the sorceress and the dirt master have found the real prize. And I'm sure taking it out of this giant snake statue it's ensconced in is going to be totally fine. Or not, because we've got zombie monsters rising from the depths. It's also funny that every time I see the ruby, I think of the stone they trapped the Wishmaster in. If you're looking at this set with its moody blue lighting and thinking it reminds you of the lighting scheme in the most infamous shot from Demons, well, good eye. Gian Lorenzo Battaglia served as the director of photography on this film. Battaglia is one of those unheralded DPs who we really should talk about more often. And if he were American, we probably would. But his resume is really impressive. He worked a lot with Lamberto Bava, collaborating on films like the aforementioned Demons and Demons 2, Delirium, and Blade in the Dark. He also brought his talents to Witchery and Luigi Montefiore's directorial effort Metamorphosis, along with too many other films to list. At any rate, The Barbarians is a really good looking film for a feature with a well under $5 million budget, and a lot of the credit for that has to go to Battaglia. He gives the film a stylish look and ensures the sets and characters all look amazing throughout. Back in the movie, oh shit, we've got the dragon. And it's every bit as awful as I imagined, too. It's like a Chuck E. Cheese animatronic gone wrong. Back with the bros, we get maybe the most anticlimactic scene ever as the rat thing attacks and is immediately beheaded. Glad we built the dramatic tension there for nothing, guys. Chef's kiss. With that settled, they head off in search of the ruby. And by set off, I mean just magically wind up in the place where the ruby is. I don't know about this D&D campaign, honestly. Two warriors and a rogue. They have zero healing. Bad idea. Things get even worse because now the ruby is gone. Which leads to this debate. I should kill you. I should kill you, you ugly scum. Look at you. <laughs> I bet this is the exact same conversation they have when there's only one dose of trend left and both of them want it. Bickering is interrupted when two more guys show up, and honestly, for being the Forbidden Land, there's sure are a lot of people wandering around this place. <laughs> Not gonna lie, the ensuing fight feels like a Road Warriors match circa 1988. But here comes the dragon, and damn, do I love this big dumb cheap thing. And they dispatch it in like 8 seconds, because this movie is running out of time. 
Plus, they get slimed like it's an episode of You Can't Do That on Television. Then they end up inside the dragon. And why do I suddenly want to sing about Lemmy Winks? But surprise, it looks like it ate the sorceress. We're just all in on the anticlimactic stuff right now. I mean, I'd like to have seen that. But before we can head to the climax, we need to get these guys wet again. I bet they had a rider written into their contract that demanded they do a certain percentage of scenes oily, sweaty, or dripping and soaked. And speaking of anticlimactic shit, here's one more reveal. His main is actually Kara, the third orphan who went missing. You think we can trust her? Of course. She's Kara. She'll never betray us. I, for one, am glad they set that mystery up early, then just basically phoned in the resolution. While they're riding off, Kadar and Canary are still down in Lime Tree, presumably trying to catch up with the main plot. Fortunately, it's going to come back to them because Canary has some magic screaming power and the twins can hear her. But they're going to be too late because it looks like Kadar has killed Canary. While he's lamenting his loss, Kara has brought the ruby back to Ibar and the Ragnicks, and I'd like to point out how much Ibar basically looks like a Final Fantasy character right here. He was definitely ahead of the curve with this back in 1987. I mean, Jesus, he even talks like a Final Fantasy character, honestly. The song is finished. The laughter silent. The dream dead. But wait, the ruby is glowing again. Has Canary risen from the dead? Not exactly, but they can choose a new queen. Do you think the Ragnicks have a one-person, one-vote system, or do they have an electoral college? Back in Lime Tree, Gore and Kuchek find Canary. And one more battle. Back at camp, the election is underway, and it seems this democratic process basically involves sticking a ruby in a virgin's belly button. If it sticks, she's queen. Not gonna lie, this would have made Cinderella a lot more interesting than the whole slipper thing. Of course, we all know Kara's gonna be queen, right? I mean, this is fantasy trope 101, basically. It fits! And called it. Now that that's settled, we can finally get what's sure to be another anticlimactic showdown between the brothers and Kadar. Look, I love Richard Lynch, but I have seen nothing in this film so far to convince me he's a viable threat to take out not one, but two Jack Barbarians. And they're nearly thwarted by the reflection of the sun. He's too figured out how to get huge in a prison camp, but not how to cover their eyes, apparently. I will say, this always reminds me of Lone Wolf and Cub as well, a series of films we will definitely be talking about at some point. Anyway, my disbelief in Kadar's abilities might have been misplaced because he somehow manages to stab them both. Well, more accurately, his stunt double does, because there's no way that's Richard Lynch on that horse. But they do manage to eventually get him off the horse. But Richard Lynch has a crossbow. Man, they're just trying to give him any tool to win at this point. But then it jams. Maybe it's a Glock. And he gets double impaled. Again, totally anticlimactic. They couldn't have at least caught an arrow or something. Anyway, so much for Kadar. Then they reunite with Kara. I'm exhausted just watching these two flex in every scene. And then we get the Italian cinema staple, the freeze frame ending, baby. Good. I like the range better. Okay, let's take another quick break and then we'll talk about the legacy of the barbarians. To say The Barbarians was not a box office hit is an understatement, but to be fair, it's not exactly the film's fault. This one opened in May of 1987, but only on a minuscule 89 screens. For comparison, today's movies regularly debut on more than 10 times that number. 
I'm not entirely sure why Canon only released this one in such limited numbers, but because of the smaller number of theaters showing the film, it only managed 800k at the box office. That was well less than its three to four million dollar budget. I'll be honest, I was pretty plugged into the movies back in 1987, reading the movie magazines, following reviews in the papers, and so on. I remember seeing or wanting to see a lot of B-movies in the theaters back then, especially canon stuff, but I don't recall the Barbarians ever playing anywhere even remotely near where I lived in Florida. I mean, I saw stuff like Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin in the theater, which I feel like maybe 10 of us can claim, but even I didn't see the Barbarians there. Fortunately, Canon was great at capitalizing on the home video and cable markets back in those days, and that's where the Barbarians really recouped its money. This was one of those video store staples around here. Every store had a copy, it was often checked out, and you'd see it everywhere well into the 90s when I was in college. The film has no critics reviews over on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 47% score from over 500 audience reviews. Frankly, that's not terrible, all things considered. All that being said, I really do feel like we were sort of robbed. There was totally franchise potential with the Barbarian Brothers in sword and sorcery flicks, but we just never got them. I think this is mostly an issue of timing. The 80s Peplum Resurgence was short-lived, and this was one of the last films of the cycle. There were only really two more noteworthy titles to emerge after this one, Luigi Coetzee's Sinbad in the Seven Seas in 1988, and Joe D'Amato's Ator IV, Quest for the Mighty Sword in 1989. Had the Barbarian Brothers debuted earlier in the cycle, we'd have probably gotten at least a sequel. It just wasn't meant to be, though. So let's talk about where everyone wound up after this film. The film didn't hurt any of the key cast and crew's careers, which is no small feat, all things considered. The Barbarian Brothers might not have ever made another sword and sorcery flick, but they did parlay their first leading roles into more movies. They didn't become the action star that Arnold did, but they did turn up in titles like Think Big, The Wonderfully Awful Double Trouble, and Twin Sitters. They also had a really great scene in Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers that got cut, but is pretty easy to find online. Sadly, David Paul would pass away in 2020. Peter is still with us, but doesn't seem likely to turn up in any more leading roles. For Richard Lynch, being in The Barbarians was just another stop on a ride that was a career in B-movies. I mean, seriously, his resume is massive and filled with movies that could be on this show. I can't even begin to highlight them all, but Lynch was never hurting for work and turned up in Full Moon films, Rob Zombie's 2007 Halloween remake, Bad Dreams, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 cult-favorite episode Werewolf, Laid to Rest, and about a billion other things. Sadly, Lynch passed away in 2012 of an apparent heart attack. Eva LaRue, for her part, wound up with a nice career in television and film after appearing here. We've mentioned her recurring role on CSI Miami, but her resume also includes Robocop 3, Ghoulies 3, an episode of cult favorite TV series Freddy's Nightmares, and lots of soap opera work. I'm going to skip over Michael Berryman and Luigi Montefiore and save them for future episodes, but believe me, both had incredible careers and are still doing stuff today. Berryman turns up in a lot of horror projects. Montefiore, meanwhile, likes to talk about the golden age of these Italian films. And it's a hoop, because he will absolutely tell it like it is with zero sugar coating. Ruggiero Diodato has forever been known as the madman responsible for Cannibal Holocaust and House on the Edge of the Park, but he made films in a wide range of genres over the course of his career. By 1987, work was slowing down a bit for the director, but he still made Phantom of Death with Donald Pleasance and the criminally underseen The Washing Machine in 1993. Oddly, while The Washing Machine has developed something of a cult following over the years, Diodato has stated in interviews that he wasn't really happy with how it turned out. In 2007, fan and filmmaker Eli Roth cast Diodato in Hostel 2, where he was the Italian cannibal. What's maybe most interesting about Ruggiero's career is not the films he made, but the ones he didn't get to make. 
Filmmaker was the original choice to helm titles like New York Ripper, which wound up with Lucio Fulci, The Last Shark, eventually helmed by Enzo Castellari, and an unmade sequel to Cannibal Holocaust that was tentatively titled Cannibal Fury. Deodato left us in December of 2022. That one still stings for me. Alright, let's get ready to rumble, because now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Or at least my favorite segment, Who Would Win in a Fight? Here we take the action hero in today's movie and pit him against notorious action movie blowhard Steven Seagal in a fight to the death. In the tale of the tape, we have the Paul brothers, who were fraternal twins and, according to their Sports Illustrated article, came in at 6 foot and 6 foot 1 and 235 and 245 pounds respectively. Seagal's measurements are much harder to pin down, with various reports suggesting he's anywhere from 6 foot 2 inches to 6 foot 4 inches tall. His weight remains a total mystery, but I assure you it's significantly more than 245 pounds. To me, this one feels like a no-brainer. I mean, I know Seagal loves to insist his Aikido jazz hands is great for dealing with multiple assailants, but there's no chance he takes both of these bodybuilding monsters in combat. I mean, his best hope is they blow out hamstrings while chasing him around the ring. Even one-on-one, -on -one, it's hard to imagine Seagal handling the raw power of either of these two. As such, I think the Paul brothers absolutely bury Seagal in combat. If you haven't seen The Barbarians before, I really do recommend tracking down a copy. It's available on Blu-ray from Scorpion Releasing through Kino Lorber, and there's a link in the show notes. If you're like me and grew up loving Thunder the Barbarian, Conan flicks, and stuff like Masters of the Universe, I fully suspect The Barbarians will be right in your wheelhouse. There's just something utterly charming about these 80s sword and sandal flicks. They're a blast to watch. But no one wants a movie night that's just one movie, so allow me to be your cult movie concierge and suggest several other films to pair well with this one for your next movie marathon. I think the obvious choice here is clearly Conan the Barbarian, a film that made a star out of another bodybuilder turned aspiring actor you may have heard of, some dude named Schwarzenegger. Plus, it's got James Earl Jones and a fantastic wig in it, and it was directed by the legendary John Milius. The only caveat I'll give you with Conan is that if you watch it before The Barbarians, The Barbarians is going to seem a little less exciting. So watch The Barbarians first. If you want to make it a triple feature, be sure to grab a copy of the beautifully shot and utterly captivating 1961 film Hercules in the Haunted World. This beloved peplum was directed by the legendary Mario Bava and features Reg Park as Hercules and Christopher Lee as a bad guy. This one is just really a special little film that I can't recommend enough. Alright, we've talked a lot about The Barbarian, so let's wrap this thing up. No one will ever argue that The Barbarian Brothers were huge movie stars or that The Barbarians is Ruggiero Diodato's best film, but there's no denying this one is a lot of fun and filled with the kind of big dumb charm Canon was famous for in its heyday. I think the coolest thing about The Barbarians is how great the Paul brothers were at just hamming it up. You can tell they know they're not great actors, but they're starring in a movie and having a blast. For me, that always makes up for a lot of a B-movie's potential shortcomings. It also helps that they're surrounded by genuine talent in the form of Diodato, Richard Lynch, and Michael Berryman. My only real complaints with this one are that we didn't get a sequel, and that I was bummed Luigi Montefiore only gets one scene. I remember hoping he'd turn up in the last act back in the day, but it never happened. Today, fantasy films and TV shows are big business. We've had huge adaptations of Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. We've got a Wheel of Time TV show. 20-year-old me would have had his mind blown by that revelation. We had a great D&D movie that most of you skipped. And shame on you for that. The nerds have truly taken over, and I'm here for it. The Barbarians, like most of the 80s fantasy films, looks hopelessly dated next to today's big-budget CGI-laden creations. 
that there's definitely a charm to these low-budget affairs with their B-movie casts and practical sets that makes them feel vibrant and timeless even in the 21st century. No one will ever mistake the Barbarians for Fellowship of the Ring, but if you like movies where beefy dudes with swords dressed in loincloths go on grand adventures and fight terrible animatronic puppets, well, it's hard to get much better than this. So, what do you think of the Barbarians? Have you seen this one before, or is this your first experience with it? Leave me a comment and let me know. I may feature some on future episodes. If you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe. If you're on another podcast platform, consider leaving me a review and sharing with your friends. Until next time, I'm Mike Bracken, and you've just experienced another trip to B-Movie Babylon. The video vault is now closed. <laughs>